good to be sharing God's word with you once again in this place. It's pretty good. For those of you who've wondered whether it's easier to share a sermon online or to share a sermon live, it's got its benefits both ways. Now, I mentioned last week, I was used to sitting down after six months of uh, sitting down sharing a sermon. But when I can't see people's faces, I don't know whether I'm connecting or not. Um, I'm just looking at myself on a screen, which is pretty boring, to be honest with you. So it's a pleasure to be sharing God's word with you. And uh, as I get used to standing up again, um, been sitting for most of uh, most of COVID, I think. So. Anyway, it's good to be sharing God's word. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 7. And we're looking at verse only 21 and 22 this morning. Daniel, Daniel chapter 7. Verse 21 and 22. Daniel seven twenty one says, On a beheld... And the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and we'll commit this time to him. We thank you, Heavenly Father, once again, that we can look into your word and trust it uh, with our own lives and souls. We do thank you that it is the milk and the meat that help us to grow. We pray for the leading of your spirit this morning, that he might guide us into your truth, that we would see Christ in all of these things, and that we would be transformed into his image day by day. We thank you for these wonderful seeds that we have that transform our lives, and we pray that they would grow to bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. One of the lies <clears throat> that the serpent offered the newlyweds in the garden was that by consuming the forbidden fruit, that they would, they too would become gods. That they would know good and evil. And it seems that this notion of being gods has plagued mankind ever since. Even though we did know good and evil and our eyes were opened to that, our fallen natures meant that we twisted whatever that told us uh, and we began to justify breaking those rules that we knew to be wrong. And so we had a conscience and our conscience told us this was wrong or this was right and we found ways around it. And we played this game from a very early age. Man has a problem with the truth truth that affects him. And so he seeks to avoid whatever truth may conflict with his or, own, his or her worldview in very devious ways. And that's why the Bible says the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Our own hearts actually are deceptive and they don't, it doesn't change even after we are saved. God gives us a new nature. The old nature is still floating around and seeks to deceive. So mankind has played gods. We have determined our own truth and what is good and what is evil. The dichotomy here is, the, the, the challenge here is, is that by nature, God designed us to be people that worship. We need something to worship, don't we? Um, 
That's our very nature. God made us that way. So it comes naturally for us to want to worship something. So what do you do? How does man get around this? Well, very easily by the looks of it. Who do you worship? You worship yourself. You put yourself in the middle of the entire universe. You are the most important thing in the universe. You must be obeyed. You must be pleased. The knee must be bowed down to you and me. And so what do we see as a common theme in the world? Well, we see man creating gods to suit himself. With laws that suit himself. With image after his own. We create gods that are fit for our purpose, fit to be worshipped because they look just like us. And that's been the game from the very beginning. When you're a god, you can do those sorts of things, you know? Now, a quote most commonly ascribed to Mark Twain is that God created man in his image and then man returned the favour. We created him in our image. Uh, this is true to a, a, a fairly high degree, and it's probably the reason God's first two commandments out of the ten are, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, that he is the only one, and thou shalt not make an idol to thyself. Don't make anything that even resembles anything in heaven or earth or under the earth, and don't bow down to worship it. And so to that end, all people have broken those first two commandments, every one. When Adam and Eve chose to obey the devil rather than God, think about this for a moment, they had God's command. The devil came along and, and gave his command. He said, that command's not right. Choose mine. The moment they obeyed the devil rather than God is the moment they declared him to be God, to be higher than God, to be more important than God, whose words were more purer than God. And man has been stuck in that in that. A little mouse wheel for a very, very long time. And this explains the resistance of man towards the notion of a holy and righteous God who not only created the physical laws of the universe, but created the moral laws of the universe who must be obeyed. People hate that notion that they have to subject themselves to someone else who's above them that they have to go by his rules, not by their own. People hate that notion. And what makes it even more difficult is that our society, which is called a postmodern society or postmodern world, says that anything from, a, from a, a moral point of view is only relative, which means my morality is just as valid as your morality and his morality and her morality, it doesn't matter what morality they're on, everyone has their own morality. And that sounds pretty familiar. It's the same lie the devil told in the garden. And our society promotes that. Our society says that it's not a standard, there is not one truth when it comes to morals. There are many, many truths when it comes. And no one can say theirs is better than someone else's. Well, that's a blatant lie. And that simply keeps man stuck in a wheel chasing something that he doesn't know where it starts, where it finishes, where it ends, or what it means. So our society has become this way 
because of ungodly philosophers and critics who discarded the, the notion of a moral truth that was fixed and have launched out into a deep ocean where there is no standard by where you can determine where you are. There is ocean all around you. How do you know where you are? If you haven't got a compass and if you haven't got some sort of a landmark, you don't. And that's where this world is. And it's spiraling out of control in an ever increasing speed as we look at what's happening in the West. This philosophy has exacerbated our deep-seated problem and it's aggravated our offence at the concept that we must answer to a God who sets the standard, who must be obeyed, who will judge our choices and our deeds by his standard. People get offended by that. And it's, a, it's, it's the main reason that most people don't come to God. They have to subject themselves to his laws, to his standard. People reject God not because they don't believe in a higher being, because almost everyone does. It's because they reject him because as gods, they reject any other God to be their judge. This sermon is about judgment. Last week we looked at the apocalypse. We looked at Armageddon. We looked at that final battle when Jesus returns and we saw the cataclysmic results of that battle. And today we look at what happens straight after that battle, which is judgment. And so just to recap quickly, the Battle of Armageddon represents the single greatest battle ever fought in the history of this world. Imagine a 200 million man army in one place at one time with all those armaments. It's never happened before. It will be at one particular location. And the reason for that is because that's where Christ returns. It will be a battle fought simultaneously on two fronts. The physical, with an emphasis on the land of Israel, and it, simultaneously, the angels of heaven will be battling the devils of hell around the same place. And all these are behind the beasts of Daniel's dream that have deceived and blinded mankind from the very beginning to that point. So Christ's victory over the forces of evil bring an end to the beasts of Daniel. Okay, They bring an end to all those things. It's the, it's the stone that, that, the, the, that was not cut out without hands, that was not man-made, that landed on the feet of that, remember that, that image? And broke the thing to pieces and it, the Bible says it just flew away like dust. And a, it sets up a new kingdom, which with Christ at its head, which will never, ever finish. So Daniel chapter 2, verse 34 says, Thou sawest till a, that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's Jesus. He's the mountain. He's the stone. And his is the kingdom that fills the entire earth after that. When, I'm, when I read this passage, I'm reminded of 
Matthew 21. Turn with me there just for a moment. Matthew 21, verse 42. Because when Jesus came the first time to his people and told them essentially that he was the Messiah who'd been promised to them, they rejected him. But he told them in pretty clear terms what would happen if they rejected him and what was necessary. So Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus saith unto them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall... It will grind him to powder. That's the difference between falling in humility before God and being crushed by the judgment of God. There's your difference there. This contrasts the brokenness that one needs to, in order to be safe, that they need to come to God with that brokenness. You cannot come to God with pride. Because if you come to God with pride as a God, you will not subject yourself to him. You will not receive his salvation as a gift. No, when you have pride, you'll come to God and you'll say, all right, I'll take that, but you know what? I'm going to supplement it with my own. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to do this. And that's a problem with religions in the world, that every religion says, I am going to do this. I am going to work my way to heaven. It's me and my effort that must count here. Even if they do believe in God and they believe in Jesus, they, they, they accept what he did, but then in the same breath they say, I'm going to have to save myself here. I can't possibly just accept it as a gift because that means I've got nothing to offer. There's nothing good in me. But refuse to be broken in spirit and you'll be judged by him. The judgment upon those foolish enough to embark in a war against God in that final battle. Who were in league with angels, fallen angels. It will be apocalyptic by every sense of the word. But what happens next? What happens after this, this huge battle where the armies of heaven, the saints of heaven come riding behind Christ? And Christ destroys the armies of the Antichrist. Well, what happens straight after that? Judgment. One of the first things in that judgment is the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Turn to Revelation chapter 19 with me. So Armageddon has happened. Jesus has won. The armies of the devil have been defeated. And the first thing that the Bible mentions is that the Antichrist and the false prophet, those that represented the devil's economy in this world, are judged immediately. Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, it says, And the beast was taken. That beast is the Antichrist, okay? And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant 
were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. That's finishing off whoever dared to align themselves with the, the devil and his army <clears throat> against God and his army. But turn forward to Revelation chapter 20. <clears throat> You'll notice that it says the beast and the false prophet are cast into a lake of fire. They're not thrown into hell. They're thrown into a lake of fire, and they're two very different things. Hell is a holding place, a prison wait for people and angels waiting for the final judgment. Okay, So those people who are unsaved now are in hell, not in the lake of fire. But there will come a day when, the, when hell itself is emptied into the lake of fire. The lake of fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. But unfortunately, mankind has, to a greater extent, chosen to follow him. And they will end up being with him there. So the beast or the Antichrist and his false prophet, who was doing miracles and deceiving the whole world, are thrown alive straight into that place. And then it says, time for the devil to be judged. Look what it says in verse, verse 1. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the... Notice what it says, the bottomless pit. It doesn't throw Satan into the, he doesn't throw Satan into the lake of fire. And shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So for 1,000 years during the reign of Christ, the devil is locked up in a prison, not in the lake of fire because he goes there later. But this is the first time the devil's ever been locked up. Up till this point, he's not locked up at all. The Bible says that even today, he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world. He goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is constantly deceiving. He is constantly at work. And his, his end goal here is to bring and usher in his kingdom into the world. The same kingdom that he promised to Jesus if he would bow the knee to him. Remember, Jesus, the, the devil took Jesus up to a high mountain and said, if you would just simply worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. So the devil is cast into a bottomless pit for a thousand years to provide the world with some relief for that, for that period where he can't go out and deceive people anymore. It's interesting. If you look at Isaiah's description here, turn to Isaiah chapter 14 with me, because at that particular point, he will look utterly weak and helpless. He will have been defeated so thoroughly and he will actually be in a position where people of the world will look at him and say, is this the guy who did this to us? Is he the one who deceived all the world and caused such destruction over all these millennia? Look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 15. 
So God's promise to the devil, even though he lifted up himself in pride and wanted to, to sit on God's throne, God says, yet, in verse 15, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. Verse 16, that they, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms? that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners. Now notice, like what happens often in the Bible is that the, there's a proclamation against a particular king, the king of Tyre, the king of Babylon, whatever, but, but God's actually speaking to the devil behind or the demon behind that person. In this particular case, he's speaking to this king and he's saying, is this the... When the world looks at the devil, when he's being when he's being finally cast down and defeated, they, I love the way it says, "They shall narrowly look up upon thee." That now you're like, is that the guy? When you're focusing, you have to say, "Is this is this really the one? Did he really roam around like a roaring lion? Is this the one that was the god of this world for all that time? Is this the one that deceived Adam and Eve? Is this the one that has kept the world blinded for so long?" They're going to say, really? Is this the one? And so he will serve a thousand year prison sentence for his crimes. And he will have lost forever the dominion of the world. All his great plans, all his devices and schemes and things that he had in, in motion ready to take the entire world finally that would be subjugated under him where people will be sealed with his seal like God seals believers where he has his own trinity where he's where he wants to be in complete control and have man under his thumb for the rest of eternity he's finally lost it and for a thousand years he'll be locked up in a in a bottomless pit where he won't be able to do anything to mankind but question is, where are the nations gone? Is this all going to be an Australia? An Australia, sorry. Is this all going to be Vegemite? I don't know. Well, quite possibly, yes. Because there isn't, the Bible doesn't say there's going to be a destruction of all the various countries. It says the nations are still going to be around. We'll talk about that next week because we're going to be talking about the structure of the millennial kingdom. Okay. So what comes next is the calling of witnesses. You know when you have to set up a court and you have, because um, the Bible says that now is the time where Jesus judges the nations. So there's a thousand year reign on the earth that's about to take place and Jesus wants to make sure that anyone entering into that thousand year reign is not marked with the devil, is not, is not against him. They have to go in as believers, essentially, okay? But there's a judgment that has to occur. So literally the countries and the people will be judged based on their behavior during the tribulation period. Just as the people who followed the Antichrist into battle against God were judged, so the governments of the world and the people that support them will be judged at this particular time. So what do you do and what do you need if you have a huge trial 
um, where there are perpetrators and victims, well, you've got to set up the the, the, the judge's uh, place where they have to sit and make decisions and you have to bring in the, the perpetrator, the person who's had the allegations against them, and you also bring in the witnesses. Those who survived the tribulation are going to be brought in as witnesses. Those who, who were persecuted and even those who were martyred for their faith are brought in as witnesses to say, that guy over there did this to me. Or that he was under his command. So literally there's going to be a court. There's going to be a huge court. And you might say, well, how do they do this one at a time? They don't. It's not just Jesus who was judging. It's actually he gives, he delegates responsibility to us. You might think, well, that's amazing. It is amazing when you think of it. There's going to be courts. There's going to be a court with thousands and thousands and thousands of judges. And you and I, I suspect, are going to be in the middle of all that. Turn back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Because now we are talking about the judgment of the nations that occurs after the apocalypse and before the thousand years where Jesus rules the world. Because the witnesses have to be called. The witnesses have to be present. And it says in Revelation 20 verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, Look at what happens here. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. These are people that were beheaded now are living and reigning with Christ. It means living. They're not ghosts. They're living. So Jesus literally resurrects them. Okay. But look at verse 5. It says, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection occurs... Before the, the millennium starts, okay? The ones that have died for their faith during the tribulation are specifically resurrected after the battle of Armageddon and before the judgment. And they, it says they rule with Christ in his kingdom for the next thousand years. But before this, they will actually be witnesses in his court. These verses teach some very important truths. And just let me clarify these for you. The first is that the Bible teaches without ambiguity that Christ returns before the millennium. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, it makes sense, right? This is called pre-millennialism. Pre. Jesus comes before the millennium. Um, believe it or not, there are those who believe that Jesus comes after the millennium. And there are people who believe that, that there is no millennium. So they have to allegorize all these things we're reading now. They have to try and make some sort of a spiritual song out of it or spiritual dance out of it. And they have to do some pretty, pretty strong dancing to get around these particular verses. Okay, But neither of these positions can be maintained without butchering huge portions of Scripture. 
eliminating the identity of Israel and having the church usurp all the promises that God made to Israel, we take them all for ourselves. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. These verses are especially significant since they point to a resurrection of all believers before the millennium, right? They're all believers are resurrected before the thousand years commences. And this makes the thousand years, is it a future event or a past event or a present event? It makes it future because, I don't know, you guys have seen any, any resurrections happening lately? No. So it can't be the past. And we're not in the middle of it, so we can't be in the middle in, in the, at the beginning of a thousand years. Some people say we're in the tribulation period now because we've got COVID, really. There's, there's no way around it, though. There is going to be a resurrection that's going to be seen, that's going to be evident, and the whole world will know about it. And this makes the thousand years a future event since the resurrection hasn't happened yet. There's no way around it. All believers, according to the premillennial position, have been resurrected or raptured before the thousand years commences. And those who are martyred during the tribulation are resurrected as well. Do you notice how it says that only they're, they're uh, resurrected? Have you noticed that? It just says the ones that were killed for their faith during the tribulation. Why does it say just them? Why, if there's one resurrection, doesn't it say everyone was resurrected? You know why? Because you and I have already been resurrected. You and I have already been raptured. You see, the, the resurrection of the saints has already occurred, and the only ones that need now resurrecting are the ones that were martyred during the tribulation. Does that make sense, everyone? It's actually quite simple if you just think about it a little bit. So those who were martyred for their faith, there's a specific resurrection that occurs for them, and it says they will rule with Christ during the thousand years. And so the doctrine that there is somehow only one resurrection is actually false because there's a special resurrection just for them. So verse 5 states, you'll notice, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years for finished. So who's resurrected first? Only the believers are resurrected who died during the tribulation. Hang on a sec, Lord, why aren't you resurrecting the rest of them? Because the final judgment, they're given their final judgment only at the end of the thousand years. Okay, They're in hell now, and they're going to stay in hell for the next thousand years until they are finally judged as well. They are not judged during this time. So every unbeliever that dies now, that has refused to, to worship God, is actually in hell now, if they've died. And they will stay there until after a thousand years has been accomplished. The special resurrection of all the martyrs during the tribulation is directly connected to the pleas that they make to God in Revelation. So turn back to Revelation chapter 6 with me because you'll notice something interesting here. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Now we're talking about the ones who were killed for their faith during the tribulation. Now it will be the greatest slaughter in the history of man, okay? It will be huge. There will be millions who will be killed for their faith, right? Have a look at what it says 
in Revelation 6, 9, where this is talking about the seals that are broken. And it says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. See that? So this is the plea, the cry that goes out from those who had already been killed during the during the uh, tribulation period by the Antichrist and his false and his false uh, uh, prophet, who were killed for refusing to take the mark because they chose to follow Christ. For those Jews who had said, "No, no, this is not the Messiah. Jesus is now the Messiah. We've realized that Jesus is the true Messiah." And they they turn to him and they are martyred, they are slaughtered, they are persecuted, they are chased to the ends of the earth by the Antichrist and by the false prophet. And what this is saying, if you look at um, the seals, and when you read the seven seals in the in the Bible, okay, they give us a panoramic view, a panoramic view of the entire tribulation period. It even it even tells you there's going to come on a white horse, this guy. Okay, he's going to look nice. He's going to be as if he's a he's a, a wonderful statesman, as if he's the Messiah. Um, and most of the religions of the world are going to receive him as their Messiah. He's going to be able to convince pretty much all of them that he is the one. But then as time goes on and he gets worse and worse and worse, the Bible says that he then begins to persecute the saints. That's why this particular seal shows that after the pale horse has happened, which is the release of hell and death. Remember when I said to you, um, there's going to be a point where the bottomless pit is literally opened and then Abaddon comes out of that pit, and he is literally named the Destroyer, okay, which is pretty nasty sort of uh, angel. But his job will be to destroy. His job will be to kill, to kill anyone who gets in the way of the devil's ultimate plan. And so, the seals give us a panoramic view of the tribulation period, and they end with, if you look at the the, the seventh seal and the sixth seal. You'll notice they end with the heavens opened up and people look up and they see the armies of heaven and the one from whose face heaven and earth fled, which is Jesus Christ. They look at him and they get scared and they want to hide under the rocks because they say the day of his wrath has come. That's why it finishes with that. It's not, there's not two times the heavens are open. There's only one. Okay, So don't get tricked by all that. Don't get fooled. There's, that gives you a panoramic view and when hell is released from, when the devils are released, those ones who have been chained up there for a very long time are going to be finally released. There will be the rider of hell and death riding a, a, a pale horse who has, a, who has power to kill a quarter of the entire planet, who has power, it says, over a quarter of the earth to kill people by whatever means he wants. And this shows the beast and the fallen angels have been have escaped into the world and the cause of deaths of hundreds of millions of people. So 
There will be a resurrection of those who were killed for their faith and they will receive the answer to their prayer. Remember what their, what their prayer was? They said, Lord, how long will you not judge and avenge? Okay, And this is exactly what happens at the actual um, judgment of the nations. Justice and vengeance on those that dwell on the earth for what they did during the tribulation. And so this is what we call the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the Gentiles. And Jesus describes exactly what happens in Matthew 25, 31. So we've just read that before. Matthew 25, you want to turn there? Matthew 25, 31. Jesus, that's, this is a literal, this is a literal um, event that occurs. This is not the judgment of every person who has ever existed. This is a literal event, a special judgment that occurs just at that time. Because remember it says, all the other unsaved people aren't even resurrected. So they're not even judged. This is a specific judgment that occurs. And so it says that when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, Matthew 25, 31, that's his second coming, right? And all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory in Jerusalem. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we uh, thee and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say unto them that on his left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did not to me. And they shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto everlasting life. Did you get the context of the passage? The nations are gathered before the Lord on his throne. And Revelation tells us that the thrones have been set up for judgment as well. How are these people judged? Well, it says they're either righteous on his right-hand side, which means they're genuine believers, and, or they're not on, the, on his left-hand side. And so their righteousness is made evident through what they do during the tribulation period. Their acts reveal their faith or lack of. So the, the question is, what's Jesus? Who's Jesus talking about here? He says, you know, when I was hungry, you, you, you gave me to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was a stranger, you took me in and you clothed me when I was naked. Um, when, what, who is he talking about? Well, have a look at verse 40 again. 
It says, And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren. Now, do you know what the word, I think about the love, I love about the Bible is that every word is actually there for a reason. Do you think you needed the word these there? If Jesus is talking generally, because you could have simply said, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of these, my brethren, or one of my brethren, without saying these, the reason he's saying these is because he's pointing to them. They're there with him. They're the witnesses. They're the, they're the ones. So, so he's literally saying, as in as much as you've done it to these, or not done it to these, because they're the ones who have been resurrected, the ones who had been martyred for their faith, the ones who are the witnesses, are there. Okay. So we learn an important principle about supporting believers, right? Here, don't we? That if someone is cold or naked, is a stranger, the Bible tells us that we are to help them. We are to support them. The Bible also says we are to do the same things to our enemies, even to those who want to persecute us and kill us, who don't love us at all. The Bible says that we are to feed them. We are to give them water. We are to help them. So we have extra things to do, right? But this is not just a principle that we're being told. This is an actual event. This is an actual future event. And it's a court case where there are witnesses, where there is, judge, there is a judge, and there are perpetrators. And it means that he is referring, that word these means he's referring to a group of people visible to everyone at that court case. They are the resurrected ones, the ones who are persecuted, who have worked, who've managed to, to survive the actual tribulation. Um, and it includes, I suspect, the 144,000 who were sealed by God on their foreheads. And it may also include nations that rebel against the Antichrist. Some people get the impression that the Antichrist is going to have a free, a free pass to everything. He's not. There are going to be nations who fight against him, who resist him. And that's why there's so much war in the world during that time as well. In contrast, those who are counted unworthy or designated as goats are the ones who refuse to help those who are marked for destruction. They ignore them. They shut their ears to their cries. They may be a next door neighbor who is about to be taken away to the slaughter and they refuse to help them. They're not willing to risk anything for them because they're worried about number one. Huh? They're worried about themselves and, and getting in trouble. They've shunned them and then maybe they've even turned them into the authorities because they were seen as troublemakers by the governments. The time will be similar to what the world has already experienced during the Holocaust, during Nazi Germany, when the Jews were rounded up, when they were treated like animals rather than people, when they were put in concentration camps and essentially gassed and murdered by the hundreds of thousands and millions. So there's a lesson here. 
um, and he's listening for us today. I wonder what we would do if we were a German citizen living in Nazi Germany during that time. Would we be the type of people who would stick our necks out to save someone who was marked for death? Would we do that? Would we hide someone in our house? Would we do that? Are we the type of people to actually um, risk our own comforts, our own safety, if we know that people need, need the help? What would we have done if we knew that our next door neighbor was about to be rounded up and gassed or shot to death because of their belief? Would we try to save that person? Would we have helped? Historically, we know there are only precious few who did. There weren't that many. There were only a few who were willing to stick their necks out and help the ones being slaughtered. So we know what man is capable of, or should I say incapable of. But we're called to be something totally different. We're called to be bold. We are called to be warriors in the face of evil. So the ones who refuse to help those ones during the tribulation period, which will include Jews primarily, will do exactly the same thing that the Nazis did in Nazi Germany. Praise God, we won't be here. But it will be a time of absolute terror for those people who have turned to Christ to be saved. And so the goats are thrown into hell, awaiting for the final judgment as well and resurrection at the end. And what's interesting is that you might think that all of Israel is saved. They're actually not. Not all of Israel turns to Christ, which I find interesting. I know that there's a revival that happens with them because many of them actually um, put their faith in the, in the Antichrist, thinking that he's the actual Messiah, and then realize that he's not. And so there's a revival where they turn to Christ and realize that Christ was the genuine article. Okay, There's actually a, a few YouTube videos with a friend of mine shared with me the other night about Jewish, some Jewish rabbis who, who say that Christians are in a, um, a, a precarious position and we're in a dangerous position because when the real Messiah comes, right, we're going to reject him. So you know, they're still waiting for the Messiah to come. So this rabbi was saying that we are likely to reject the Messiah, which puts us as troublemakers, right? That Christians will reject the Messiah because we've already had our Messiah. We, we, we believe the Messiah has already come, whereas the Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. So when he comes, they're going to be ready for him, right? But we're not. So that makes Christians troublemakers. Not all of, of, of the Jews turn to Christ. Look at, look at Ezekiel chapter 20 with me. Ezekiel 20. Not all of the descendants of Jacob will return to the Lord, even during this time, even during the tribulation at the end. There will be rebels who still will reject the notion of a Messiah. They will have put their faith in the Antichrist instead. Ezekiel 20, 34, listen to God speaking about his people when he's bringing them all back home. 
It says in Ezekiel 20, 34, and I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out, poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face, like as I pleaded with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So will I plead with you, saith the Lord, and I will cause you to pass under the rod and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. Look at verse 38. And I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So even his own people, he knows the ones who have betrayed their own, who refuse to, to, uh, to receive Christ, because they've put all their faith and all their, all their hopes in the Antichrist, and God is going to judge them. And they will not be allowed to enter into Israel. You see, Israel will then become the capital of the entire world. The Antichrist will try to make it the capital of the world, but it won't. He'll fail. But not all the descendants of Jacob will turn to the Lord. But what's interesting here, so, so there's a judgment, not only of the Gentiles, but there is a judgment of God's people, of, of Israel as well, right? Look at what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 19, 28. Matthew 19, 28. Look at who his disciples will be judging. It says in Matthew 19, 28, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, that's that's in the in the future at this particular time, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones. What are they doing? Judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So not only, and that even includes rule as well, but they shall judge their own people. They shall be the judges of their own people, it says. They're going to be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now the question is: what about us? What are we going to be doing? Well, it seems as if we're going to be judging as well. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Now, this is a rebuke that, that Paul um, gives to the Corinthians, which is not uncommon for the Corinthians. They've got themselves a whole lot of trouble time and time again, right? So Paul gives a, look, a stinging rebuke to these guys. And look what he says, right? And and but their rebuke is our blessing, right? Because we've learned something we didn't know because they did something wrong. First Corinthians chapter six verse one. He says to them, "Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust? That means people who aren't even saved, and not before the saints. How dare you go to to, to worldly?" Uh, judges rather than going to your own church to sort the thing out look at verse 2 do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world and if the world shall be judged by you are you not are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters look at verse 3 know you not that we shall judge angels 
How much more things that pertain to this life? What a rebuke. He says, don't you understand that one day we will be in such a privileged position that the Lord will require us to judge people's lives and angels and fallen angels as well. And he says, if you can't even judge on little matters like this, what are you doing? Don't you realize? And so what are you and I going to be doing? We're going to be judging. How do you feel about that? Court cases are so terrible, aren't they? They're so, you know, they just, they're heartbreaking. They're, there's always lies. There's always maneuvering. But you know what? There'll be no maneuvering, no shifty uh, things going on. Everything's going to be out in the open. Okay? So, and what's going to be beautiful is that the Lord is there with us every step of the way. These aren't going to be these, these aren't going to be trials where there's no justice served at the end. These are going to be trials where the trial and the outcome is perfect justice. But you and I are going to be involved in that. You know, for much of this, this series, I've tried to impress upon you the dual nature of existence. The existence of heaven and hell. And the interrelationship between the physical world and the spiritual world. You know, heaven is an expanse where angels and even devils live. They're made for that realm. We were created for the world. But some angels have chosen to rebel against God and trespass into our world and seek to have dominion over us. They've sought to become gods among us, all the while saying, you're gods yourselves. They've taken advantage of mankind and, and their ability to be able to see us, but we can't see them. And this is the story of the devil's plan, where he's wanted to become the god of this world forever, to lock it in and to keep the world subjugated. But God will bring all that to an end and will judge both man and angel. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 20. Because Isaiah describes this judgment so beautifully. Isaiah 24, verse 20. Pay attention to the, to the, the ways he refers to different people here. And this is, this is after the tribulation, okay? So the, the earth has gone through cataclysmic changes, which explains verse 20. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. How does, how does a drunkard walk all over the place without control, okay? The earth will reel to and fro like a, a drunkard and shall be removed like a cottage. And the transgression thereof shall be heavy upon it. And it shall fall and not rise again. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish the host of the high ones that are on high and the kings of the earth upon the earth. And they shall be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in a pit and shall be shut up in the prison. And after many days shall they be visited. Then the moon shall be confounded and the sun ashamed when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. I love that. His ancients. God reigns before his ancients. I suspect it's probably you and me. Okay? The eternal ones. Right? God has given us eternal life. And so we become the ancients, or could be referring to angels too. 
not entirely sure. Um, but notice how it says that there's two phases to this judgment. It says he, he judges the high ones on high. Well, there the principalities and powers enthroned in high places, the Bible describes. So there's a judgment of the wicked angels and there is a judgment of the kings of the earth. And I love that the way that, that verse actually finishes that, that he reigns in Zion, in Jerusalem, before his ancients gloriously. Um, there's a dual-fold judgment that occurs here. But the judgment of the wicked who have already died happens at the end of another thousand years. They have to wait for their final judgment because it tells us in Revelation 25, the rest of the dead live not again. So the first resurrection, if you're blessed to be part of the first resurrection, the Bible says that the second death, which is the lake of fire, has no hold on you. If you're part of the first resurrection, then you are a saved individual and there is... And there is no death that occurs. But the first resurrection is everyone who gets resurrected before that time, which includes every person who is in church, every Old Testament saint, and even the ones who are resurrected when they were killed during the tribulation period. That's all the first resurrection. Because the second resurrection, you don't want to be a part of. The second resurrection occurs after the thousand years and no one gets saved there that is literally a guilty 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 the challenge for us and that challenge for us is that passage that we read in first corinthians 6 1 it's are we judging correctly today you know, the Apostle Paul told off the, the Corinthians because they were arguing with each other about silly things, bringing each other to court about silly things. And Paul says, don't you understand who we are? Don't you understand what we have been called to do? And if you can't judge even um, arguments between each other, how are you going to judge angels and, and the world? And the question I have for us today is, do we actually judge properly now? Do we, do we judge according to God's standard ourselves? And that's where judgment first begins, isn't it? That we need to judge ourselves first by God's standard, not by our own, because there's a temptation even for Christians as they read the Bible to dismiss certain things that don't apply to them and to take ones that, I can do that. But you know that one? I think I'll just disregard it. Do we judge ourselves righteously? You know, every time we have communion, and we haven't had this, haven't had it for a long time now, the beauty about having the Lord's table is that it tells us to examine ourselves. But we should be examining ourselves on a regular basis. We should be examining our thoughts, our words, our actions. Are they in line with God's standard? And when I say that, it doesn't make us more judgmental of others. In fact, it should make us less judgmental of other people. In fact, when we judge, God tells us to judge now how? Like the way Christ judged when he was on the earth. The Bible says that he had compassion for people. The Bible says that he loved them. The Bible says that he fed them. That even the ones who were against him, he did not condemn, but 
he judged from the point of view of knowing that there's a call out for salvation and the time is short. And so that should be our modus operandi now. What a sad thing to think that we too often judge by our emotions, by selfish means, by the outward appearance. Do we judge because of jealousy? Because that person is not in my group of friends, or that person is not like me, or that person is irritating, so I'll judge them and put them in a particular box, so everything they do is wrong. We are not immune to what the world does, but we should have our eyes open to what the world does and not follow. Do we judge with prejudice or bias? When we judge, you know, the, one of the most important things to be a good judge is you need to be able to listen. But how often do we find ourselves in a discussion with someone else and while they're still talking, we're, we're formulating our response. So we're not really listening. Can I, can I encourage you all, um, when you're in a discussion with someone else, and it could be a believer or non-believer, shut your brain off while they're, while they're talking. Don't go thinking of responses while in, they're in the middle of talking because it means that we're not listening. And the children of God, the, the Christian, the bride of Christ, the church, the ambassadors of God in this world should be fantastic listeners because that's the way God was with us. Do you not think that God listens to every plea that you give him? Does he not listen to all our ramblings and excuses and problems? And that's what we should be to the people in this world. We should be great listeners. We should, be, we should have, like God is, how does God deal with us? He gives us grace, which means he gives us what we don't deserve. Each and every day, we don't deserve it. He shows us mercy. He shows us love. He shows us forgiveness. He is patient. He is kind. That's what we have been called to judge in this life. And finally, just, just a thought. The world wants to play its own God. So it doesn't subject itself to God. Doesn't subject himself to his word. Do we subject ourselves to his word? Are we willing? to subject ourselves to what he says, to his uh, assessment of us now? Because if we're not willing to, to be assessed by him now, what makes you think we're going to be happy to be assessed tomorrow? What makes us think that the devil hasn't got us wrapped around his little finger? If we're not willing to subject ourselves to the devil, you know, one of the signs of an unbeliever was when they were brought when matters were brought before the church, that person was not willing to be sub subject to the decision of the actual church. So the Bible says, treat them like a heretic. So are we willing to judge ourselves according to God's standard? Are we willing to to follow what God has called us to be? Are we righteous in our judgments? You want to judge righteously today? 
then judge the way you are being judged now by God. Be the same way with them as he is with us. And one day, we will judge the world. And we will do it understanding all things. God bless you. I pray that this message was a blessing to you.